0: Everything you are about to hear in the next two hours is exactly and only and nothing but the truth, said Orson Welles at the outset of one of his lesser-known films, F for Fake, which was a fake documentary about a fake biography of a fake artist. There was a biographer of sorts, named Clifford Irving, who wrote a biography about this guy called himself Elmir, who was, according to many, the greatest art forger of the 20th century. Up until today, it is claimed that there are Elmeres in almost every major art museum in the world. And, you know, how would we know? Because the experts, the gatekeepers, the curators of these museums are incentivized to not admit it were they ever to discover the opposite, if they say, "Oh yeah, this is Rembrandt this is a Rembrandt, twenty years ago, it would look less like experts were they to come out now and say, Oh yeah, this is uh, this is uh, we were duped, or the forebearers of our institutional position were duped, and so maybe or maybe not, there are Elame's In the Louvre. We don't know. So Clifford Irving writes a biography of this guy. And then on the heels of that, he goes, he shops around to the big New York publishing houses a pitch to write a biog, and even, you know, a big money, big fame biography of Howard Hughes. Because he says, look, I can write the only authorized biography of Howard Hughes. He and I met at the top of a pyramid in Mexico. And he signed this contract that says I and only I am allowed to write his biography. And this was at one of those times where Hughes was totally reclusive. Nobody heard from him for how many ever years. But Clifford Irving has. We had a secret meeting and I've got his signature on this piece of paper. So he goes about writing that biography of Hughes and whatever. And then that comes out and it's getting famous. And then Hughes calls up the publisher Or someone pretending to be Howard Hughes calls the publisher and says, I've never heard of Clifford Irving, and I did not authorize this biography. And on the basis of that telephone call and who knows what else, they actually prosecute Irving for this, and as I understand it, he's convicted, and it was all that it was a scam. So then Orson Welles comes along and shows that War of the Worlds was not his only trickery, that he's willing to part... Participate in, and he makes this movie F for Fake, which is billed and appears to be a documentary about Irving, and Elmer, and Hughes. And in the movie, kind of the story of it is that he's saying that maybe when El- when Irving was doing the biography of Elmer, the art forager, who had it was able to do all these signatures of all these artists, apparently. Um that maybe Irving may asked Elmire to forge Howard Hughes' signature. So that's kind of the detective work that Wells is engaging in in this and you know, he's interviewing the two and whatever. And Elmire says, Well, I'm not even a criminal. Wells, I've never even signed any of my paintings. That was someone else, and I'm not gonna tell you who it was i only do the the work and there's nothing wrong with that i'm just m- making an homage and it's someone else who signs the paintings and then sells them as forgeries and that's kind of his weasel out thing uh so then we get to this part of the movie where wells is interviewing the two and says all right well who did the howard Hughes signature and that's a shot of wells and he asks that question and you have a shot of irving and he just is this poignant silence, and then you have a shot of Elmir and he's just kind of looking, and a shot of Irving, and it goes back and forth. But it turns out that that entire thing is a fake, too, because Wells never met or interviewed either of these people. He bought footage, in, interview footage from the BBC and cut it in so that it looked like he was interviewing them and doing this thing. So you have fake upon fake upon fake, and what of this movie was Wells tricking us? What if it was Irving tricking Wells, what if it was Elmere tricking Irving during the biography of the... And by this point, one knows what it's like to step into the epistemological position of Robert Anton Wilson.
1: didn't uh, expect that at all
0: that was a story that he is told a couple times in some of his lectures oh. that have been thankfully saved online it can be found on YouTube okay I really like that little story I did I always love those kind of stories uh, and, and and
1: Irving really did go to to prison or, or what? What's... I don't
0: know what the result was. But according to Wilson, he, quote-unquote, was prosecuted for this.
1: Okay, well, when you go so many loops deep, you get, like, you're like, I don't trust but anybody. You know, who right, yeah. yeah,
0: that's the whole, uh, <laughs> who knows? And then maybe Wilson was either mistaken or lying about that to make the story better. Oh, Jesus. But that's the whole, that's the lesson, and that's the major message, in my opinion. And he has at various times admitted that, though, most of the time, doesn't. But that that's what Robert Anton Wilson's career was about. That was his major message. The whole, uh, the universe contains a maybe. Or wouldn't the world be a saner place if more people said maybe more often? Okay, but this little
1: episode is not about the ideas... It's actually kind of more about this particular person and uh, Robert Anton Wilson. But it's kind of, we're flirting here, us dawdlers, with a like a theme style episode that we would do from time to time. Where instead of just focusing solely on ideas, which is what we tend to do now, it creeps in there often the people in their lives and things like that. But that's mostly just to kind of well that's probably mostly just conversation number 1, but number 2 it's also to get sometimes provide context if it's needed. But this time I think we're mostly just going to work out of talking about this person in the and the ideas will give them context. Maybe it's kind of like that. We're toddlers, we're not hustlers. We don't have a really good solid plan. Maybe that's the way it'll turn out. As most things that we have been doing in this kind of format, they're works of improvement. You know, we we continue to hopefully improve and progress as we go along. But uh, we call this uh, little venture, little theme venture or whatever, uh, Haunting the Margins. We have... We have a uh, slight amount of experience, experience with this kind of idea just because when we've talked about it with other you know friends and things like that, we've kind of always we chosen various individuals um intellectuals that uh we wanted to sometimes we'd go and do some research into and just be like what's what's up with this person and why why this person the way they are um in particular, though, I think uh, for Harland the, you know a number of these margin haunters <clears throat> have been uh, quite influential on his thinking, and it makes one stop and wonder well why why aren't they quite influential on other people's thinking or a lot of other people's thinking? Why is it that these people seem to be in the shadows of intellectual history compared to say, the shining stars of you know, people we've talked about in this podcast, like uh, Darwin and Einstein and on and on and on. Um, These are individuals that kind of seem to be, you know, uh, not forgotten, but not uh, celebrated anyway. And uh, in particular for Harland, this guy today, who we're going to talk a lot about, Robert Anton Wilson, and his ideas and just generally his framework of thinking, um, it's kind of been a gateway drug to a
0: lot of other margin hunters.
1: I I think.
0: Uh, oh, for sure. Yeah, he's turned me on to many interesting individuals. One of the ways that he puts it with this marginalization component is like he will say the bookstores never know what to do with me. I'll often walk in and you know uh, egotistically want to take a look at. <laughs> you know, if you've got any copies of my stuff. And often he'll ask where he's located and they'll say, well, you know, we've got you under the new age section and I'll go and be dismayed to find myself shelved next to Eric Von Daniken. But recently I've been to some Barnes and Nobles when those used to exist. <laughs> this poor guy died in 2007. That they moved me to philosophy, and I found myself next to Wittgenstein, and I felt much more comfortable there. (laughs) So that how these people see themselves is often quite different from how they are perceived by the wider culture. Yeah, who you know pushes them to the margins or fringes, and I sometimes call them fringe intellectuals. All
1: right. Well, do we want to? kind of outline a little bit more about what we mean by these margin haunters, these, these fringe
0: intellectuals? I could try. All right. Here's the thing. So, if we want to define what it means to haunt the margins, my attempt at doing so would run something like this. So we we'll start by defining intellectuals. If that's a term that we apply to those human beings who primarily behave in such a way that their activities involve a lot of conceptual manipulation. They live in a world of ideas and words and symbols. They study various sciences or humanities. They make attempts at epistemologies or ontologies, etc. These are just, you know, people of the mind, intellectuals. So that's kind of the base class that we can use to talk about the rest, the margins. So then, What sort of social, cultural institutions become developed by and participated in by these intellectuals? And if you kind of make a map of those institutions and lay them all over each other, you can approximate a measure of centrality or marginality that you can rank people on. So some of those that I think would probably go in the map might be things like academia, (laughs) the pedagogy, whatever, we're educating people. That's something that intellectuals are interested in and develop cultural institutions around. Media, from Fox News to Bantam House, whatever, there's publishing, there's speaking, there's just dissemination, of these ideas that they're developing And then the uh, What I might want to call The evil and I'm not quite beyond good and evil at all times Triumvirate Of Government Economics And religion uh, These are another place where a lot of You know, think tanks And politics And whatever The lawyers The in, in, Intellectuals might sometimes become lawyers. That that's pretty much the institutionalization of intellectuality. So, once you've got those institutions, it seems likely that they will have various practices, taboos, patterns, goals, driving factors that would uh, incentivize one to abide by if you want to be included in the institutions. So that when we look at the individuals on that map, we can see that they're going to cluster around these various careers, pursuit of money, habits, various ways of canalizing their behavior. And then if you look really close and zoom in, well, zoom in but then pan right or left... You might, you'll might you get out to the margins where there are just a few sparse dots uh, which have strayed. And these are those margin-haunting intellectuals that our, the ideolo- ideologies of our cultural institutions might push them to the fringe. And then so we can... That's, I guess, my version of what this series of episodes, this haunting the margins, Doddler's philosophy series, would be about those people who kind of get pushed out by general intellectual culture for one reason or another. So
1: (laughs) it's just a hair past a freckle Ireland. Um, He looked at his wrist as if he was looking at his watch. Like, did that take too much time? And I say, no, comment, comment, comment. I have an analogy though. And already, I'm just going with it because Ooh, we're not. Um, I kind of think of it as, um, <clears throat> the way wood grows is, um, it grows kind of at the margin and it grows out. You know, so the trunk of the tree, the circumference, if you will, if you could take a slice, you know, and you look at a log or whatever it grows from that margin out right and my analogy is kind of like well when western civilization was you know an intellectualism in western civilization was but a wee sapling or what what have you even though there wasn't much to it relative to say perhaps today people like socrates maybe were kind of Even Socrates, our precious Socrates, was kind of at the margins. So much so that they killed him. You know, he's corrupting the youth. And then people like Galileo. Like, I know that he probably was relatively able to handle the mainstream. I don't know all the details of the history of that individual. But even Galileo, who wanted to put forth a more, you know, just a different pattern to understand... Our place in the universe, the heliocentric orbit of Earth around the sun, even some of that he he kind of rubbed up against the, the 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 church, the Catholic Church, and they were the establishment. They were probably the core of the intellectual world, and he was kind of pushing the envelope there by taking Copernicus's revolution and trying to push that along. And we all kind of know his story of imprisonment and defamation and all that. And I kind of think, I wonder how we see some of these people in the future. Not all of them will probably make it into the stories that we've made of Socrates and Galileo. But some of them might, you know. They might just be at the margins. Haunting the margins might be where intellectual activity, or it's maybe the growth ring of intellectual activity, if you will. Kind of where all the action is happening.
0: That happens a lot in the arts, right? Where some will be not appreciated in their time, but the famous quote or whatever, well, I know I'll be appreciated after I die. I think that might've even been Orson Wales*. I'll be famous after I'm dead, isn't it? Something, uh, some, I think I just saw that on Netflix or whatever. Anyways. Um, <laughs> and James Joyce was that, right? Uh, very. A lot of them will be poor and unappreciated in their time, but then become the central figure of 20th century literature or whatever. Oh, right. And so that you can move inward or outward as the institutions change their values. And then you can, oh, all of a sudden, this person no longer is pushed to the fringes. And then someone like Tesla, maybe. Is that someone who were, was more central and now is kind of considered margin, like kind of weird and fringy? I don't know. We're going to have to look
1: into him because I've definitely thought about him and I'm wondering if he's always been sort of fringy but is becoming more mainstream now or if his, he's, as you would say, started off mainstream and then became more fringy. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. know. But
0: uh, he might be a haunting the margins topic. And that's one of the things, one of the guys that Robert Anton Wilson has spent a ton of time and effort on. He's, among other things, that is unappreciated. So nobody even knows who he is in the first place, right? Very underappreciated guy. But even of the people who know Robert Anton Wilson, I don't know how many of them realize that one of his avocations was being a James Joyce scholar. And Mm -hmm. I think, like, I don't even know what all this guy published because I'm pretty sure he did all kinds of things under various pseudonyms that Uh I wouldn't even know. Right. But I get the impression that he's published in standard Academic journals about James Joyce scholarship, but might not even be under that name. And, yeah,
1: you know. yeah, for sure. So we're kind of go out on a limb and say we're kind of trying to we're, we're going to try and franchise this fucker on these different intellectuals, and uh, you know that's kind of uh, something we're just sort of going out on a limb about right off the bat, and I don't know how frequently we will do these honestly i'm not going to be like every 50th one or you know episode or something like that but definitely
0: fewer and far between
1: cuz we just a lot of ideas that us toddlers want to talk about
0: yeah and you know this the advantage of not being constrained in the in this new media podcast world <laughs> yeah. of unaffiliated primates we can talk about whatever the fuck we want and sometimes we want to talk about Crazy drugged out hippies that had weird ideas, and we're gonna just do it.
1: We're gonna do that a lot with this particular theme. I am <laughs> between like Timothy Leary and Terrence McKenna and others. Um, if we get to Timothy Leary, I mean, dude was a psychiatrist, so it's not like he was. Anyway, he's not Another... a poet. You know what I mean? <laughs> he's not <laughs> like try these drugs, guys. He's like he actually has like an interesting the. Somewhat legitimate basis for why he thinks certain drugs would be good for whatever, depression or something.
0: Yep. And coincidentally or not, I don't know how much you know this, but they he was good buddies with Robert Anton Wilson. They co-authored at least one book. Mm. They worked on some of the same... Uh, Robert Anton Wilson worked out one of Tim Leary's models of consciousness. The Eighth and Circuit th- one? Yeah, this Eighth Circuit model of consciousness. And then I think that he was even one of, they were close enough friends that he was one of the people that was visiting Leary as he was dying. And, you know, so they were a lot of overlap there. All right.
1: So who is this dude, Robert Anton Wilson? Uh, (laughs) He looks strange to me. And he has this pretty thick New York accent. When you listen to him on YouTube videos or recordings or whatever.
0: Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Why should we care about this weirdo? Well, those are two very different questions. The first part won't have anything to do with why you should care. But the who is he question, I can blab a little bit about first. Uh, Irish Jewish, born in Brooklyn in 1932, right, in the heart of the Depression and growing up through World War Two and whatever. Uh, kept his thick accent his entire life. I think it must be partially on purpose, because he obviously cared about things like that. Uh, one of the things that I like about him is that he purposefully will use alternative pronunciations of Debatable terms Like three different ways Throughout a lecture He'll just say a word Three different ways (laughs) Um, Had polio as a kid And was Quote unquote Cured By A non Medically accepted method They called it Sister Kenny method That some nun came up with I think it just had to do With a lot of like You bathe yourself On this schedule Or what It's about being cleanly And so that And I think he would say that that's one of the reasons that he ended up with this radical agnostic epistemology that he was pushing, is that he's like, whatever, man. I was 10 and I was going to die of this disease, and I didn't. And I was doing something that all of the quote-unquote experts told me wouldn't work. Maybe (laughs) it's just a coincidence, or maybe there's something to the power of positive thinking, or who knows what. Um, he started at a Catholic high school and then moved to some kind of technical school, so he's got the whole getting over the Catholic upbringing thing that he talked about often. Um, and then he did various types of colleges and universities at various times, partial degrees in mechanical engineering, and psychology I think different types of dropping out. He eventually did get a PhD in psychology, but not from a super <laughs> uh, like respectable institution. It was I don't know if it's even like Trump University style thing. I don't know. It went out of business like soon after he was done. So you know, even in this way he's like a fringe. Well, he has a PhD. <laughs> oh yeah, does he? Did you see where it's from? Like, I don't know. I'm not calling him doctor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and worked as an editor at Playboy for a long time, doing the mailbag, and that's where he got a bunch of his conspiracy talk, because in the late 60s, early 70s, there were a bunch of people writing into Playboy about conspiracies, and he and one of his co-editors, Robert Shea, would come up with clever and comedic answers to all these far-out theories, and then that's they that was some of the grist that they rewarmed into their first major book, this Illuminatus trilogy, a kind of sci-fi, fantasy, horror, <laughs> joycy and weird, far-out, drug, psychedelia, novel, whatever the hell it is. Again, people don't know how to categorize it. Wilson wanted it to be a great work of literature that attempted to change the consciousness of everyone who read it. In the same way that Ulysses did when it came out, and then he just became a general fringe marginal, uh, you know, lecturer. Worked with a bunch of the general semantics and neurolinguistic programming people, and would give seminars, workshops, and then he, you know, published newsletters, tried to start a publishing house, wrote a bunch of both fiction and nonfiction, and plays and screenplays, and he just, you know. Lived and did shit, so never had an academic career, but always had an engaging with ideas career.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, just but
0: I, I mean, I don't know what kind of a person he was. Was he the? Type, was he a drinker? Yeah, he was an everythinger, but I don't think that he was. He didn't give me the impression of being addicted to any of them or imbibing anything to excess such that it fucked up his life he always struck me as someone who was extremely sane and he just had a sense of humor about everything and he experimented with everything both substances and practices he was into different types of meditation and yoga as well as taking every drug under the sun to try to mess with his brain and see what happened seems like super open
1: Mm-hmm. Um, You know, just open to experiences Openness to experience
0: Yeah! 100% <laughs> Um,
1: But, like, he does strike me as somebody who would never really become addicted to something Because then that would take away from his ability to just talk and talk and talk Because he seemed like a real talker Talker Like, that was his drug mm-hmm. Just talking to people And just, you know I guess to, a, to an extent, almost having a, not obvious, it's not a stand-up comedy routine, but it had elements of humor, and I'm sure he used quote-unquote bits or, you know, things that he retold. I'm sure he re- retold stories that worked and didn't tell ones that didn't or whatever to get the point across, and I'm sure humor was a factor.
0: I don't know the details of how his various engagements were billed, But I have heard the word stand-up applied to him at various times. But clearly not a stand-up comedian. No. Like another of his buddies, George Carlin, was. But he did... There were bits, and some of the lectures that I've heard subsequently were significantly, if not primarily, attempts at comedy. I don't think he was all that funny. I think he's much smarter than hilarious. But... But humor was a huge part of what he was doing. And he would joke around often. And I would like to propose that as one of the attributes of a, one of the reasons to be marginalized. I don't think, like if we switch a little bit back and forth between yeah. the general topic of haunting the margins and the specific example. Please of, do. Listen. What do you think about that? Our academia, government, religion, business, what of those has a fucking sense of humor, right? That's not welcome. So I think that if in your presentation and your work you emphasize making or attempting to make jokes, that's one of the reasons that people would look down their nose at you perhaps. I, I I would agree. I go, To go back to my
1: little analogy, you know, the, the tree's growing at the edge. Well, that means all on the inside is the dead wood, you know, the humorless dead wood. I think mm. humor <clears throat> is, Set him up. <laughs> I think humor is... When you're facing the abyss, you can either laugh in its face or you can sob uncontrollably in utter fear and anxiety and... If you're pushing the envelope, whatever that is, haunting the margins, you're likely to be running into quite a bit of failure almost on all fronts. Some of your ideas may not work. Uh, Certainly, your attempts to be gainfully employed might not work. You know, uh, you're just going to be up against harder times than somebody who does everything the way they're told they need to. You know, first you do this, then you do this, then you do this, and you eventually become 60 years old and you can do whatever you want, but you don't because you're 60 and you can't do anything anymore or whatever. Someone like Robert Anton Wilson, and I'm thinking a lot of these other people that we're going to talk about, are quote-unquote free. You know, they are going to go for life now. They're not going to wait. They're not going to... Be like, oh, well, I can't do that because it's not my time yet. You know, like, no. Are going to be here now? Be here now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, that, that's the basic idea. I think that's a, a big part of it. I mean, we've already done a couple people that I think are margin haunters to an extent, even though they, quote unquote, in their own ways, perhaps made it or whatever. I think Nietzsche is kind of one of those margin haunters to an extent. I definitely think Korzybski is one. But I don't think Dennett is a margin haunter. I think he doesn't fall into this category. These people are are they're not as far as I can tell buddies with mainstream individuals, although there yeah, there are people who I would not include in this margin haunting exercise, but who were buddy buddy but who only seem to be now kind of mainstream, like for instance, I think uh Douglas Rushkoff, the, the, the media theorist, was close to a lot of these various different kinds of margin haunters in his own right. Including Wilson. Including Wilson. He was actually, I think, the person who broke the news of Wilson's death. There you go. But I wouldn't necessarily per- myself think, oh, he's,
0: he's at the margin. We've talked a little you bit. You wouldn't think? No. Rushkoff's totally marginal. He's great, and I like him. But I would put him in the margins. maybe he seems i mean he's got like a
1: nice academic job right i mean he's he's uh, he. anyway we didn't come here to debate who goes in and out right now but you know i think you also would say thaddeus russell or somebody is haunting the margins he's certainly (laughs) at the fringe because he's got his own like renegade university thing or whatever
0: but i think he's i don't know i don't know Yeah, i totally would put thaddeus out there and so my thing on that would be like to compare someone like Russell to someone like Eric Weinstein and or this in the whole IDW style movement. Uh I think that the IDW is not margin haunters or at least doesn't want to be. They aren't. I mean, I don't know, it's funny, and this isn't a whole separate topic, because I want to say, like, they aren't violating any taboos, and then they'll come by and tell me that that's our whole thing, and everybody hates us because we're violating taboos. Well, I don't know, this is a separate topic.
1: Oh, the IDWers? No, but it's okay to talk about, because we're trying to, at the same time, improve and, through our conversation, maybe, you know, uh, enhance whatever definitions of the topic we have. This is the first motherfucking one. We'll get back to <laughs> Raw. Robert Anton Wilson. Raw. We'll say Raw from now on just because it's easier to quickly say rather than Robert Anton Wilson. You can
0: just say Wilson.
1: But then I think of uh, fucking Tom
0: Hanks and Outcast or whatever
1: the fuck that movie was. Oh,
0: wow. That ruined. <laughs> then I'm like, no, I can't do that. that. Ruined that whole name for you, huh? Uh, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, Russell, I don't think is at all like that. You know, somebody invited him to be in the IDW or whatever, and he was like, no thanks, and whatever. Um, Because he's (laughs) more interested in doing his own thing, not joining groups, and more willing to violate social norms. One of the things he's big into on his podcast, or whatever, right, is a bunch of sex stuff. And I would, again, so if humor is number one, well, and then taboos in general, But these all might go under the heading of taboos. But another one I would propose, as a reason to be marginal, is sex. Caring about, talking about, engaging in, heaven forbid, different types of... (laughs) Sorry. And and Thaddeus Russell is all about that shit. Like, he's always got porn stars and dominatrices and people... He's, I mean, maybe even a little too much... Right, oh. yeah, you begin to wonder but like he's all about that and when do you hear eric weinstein or sam harris talk about sex like no that's not their thing oh they're so puritan repressed puritan repressed whatever so uh yeah i mean that's what are you thinking about this like are we i just think he's a-, a fan he's like us he's a fan i mean I mean, I'm certainly
1: not haunting the margins. I would say you're much more closer to haunting the margins than I am. Yes. But honestly, I don't I'm know. I'm probably if,
0: not even. I'm just haunting the vacuum.
1: I would like to think that... this—that You know how they always say things like, um, you know, the vitality of a society is whatever. I don't know what they usually say. If I could remember, I would say it. But one of the things I would add to that list that doesn't have any items in it right now because I can't remember um is that the vitality of a society or whatever strength of a society would be how many people you would f- fit into this kind of a little category we've created of margin Oh, you're
0: saying that makes it more vital.
1: Yeah. And to me I don't think we've got that very that many cuz everybody is all about being different. I I'm, I'm a really big fan of Anthony Bourdain. I just I don't know what it is, but I just am it like a lot of other people are. And he did this thing, this, this last episode of the Parts Unknown series. I'm not here to like promote the fucking thing. I'm just trying to give an example here. And it was on the Lower East Side. is an area where he used to buy drugs when he was a heroin addict or whatever. But it was the 70s, the late 70s. And, um, you know, so for him, it was this nostalgic thing. But he, he interviewed quite a number of people. Uh, especially people at the very beginnings of sort of the punk movement and and whatnot. And, you know, it just strikes me that, like, you know, uh, the society, even though it was harsh and, and it was not at all, like, figured out or whatever, being different was kind of new in that way. Because even if, like, you have hippies in the 60s and all that kind of stuff that was that was a little more political. this kind of stuff seemed more just sort of like, eh, oh, we're just weirdos, you know we're all just a bunch of freaks, and we don't fit in. you know we really don't fit in, and we only by accident are making something are making some group think or whatever you want to call it and uh to me, we don't really have that now. everybody just likes a, makes a claim to being different. Everybody's out there trying to just. Be that, and so I don't know how many real margin haunters there are today. As opposed to the seventies, when someone like Robert Anton Wilson was on the lecture circuit, and Charles Bukowski was like selling tons of books in Europe and drinking his wine every night while he wrote, you know, his books. And I think all I don't know. So it's, it's that kind of stuff that I was thinking. Um, so yeah,
0: I, I I don't know how many there are nowadays either as someone who has an affinity for this style of life, mm-hmm. for this lifestyle, <laughs> I would like to find some.
1: You're, you're starting, I'm starting to rub off on you, you know, where it's like, you got to say the phrase uh, like 50 ways wrong before you get to the one you originally want Anyway,
0: I haven't found yet my new Robert Anton Wilson or Terrence McKenna, or, you know, They may be out there, the candidates that I'm aware of. I'm not impressed by Daniel Pinchbeck, Graham, what's his name? Graham somebody, Uh, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not there. I don't know. Maybe it takes time and perspective and you can only perceive your high quality margin dwellers looking backward. I don't know.
1: I think things are pretty diluted today. The core like even you know everybody's starting to feel left out you know there's we've we've maxed out in some way uh you know our our institutions are all full and it's a you know all these things are all super coveted, but you know back in the day you know sometimes there was this one guy who was apparently a zoologist down uh the i five corridor here at the University of Oregon, I think it was that, but he used to he worked uh first at the united states geological survey and he was just literally told like you're gonna study this you know and then he became an expert it was a bivalve of some kind fossil bivalve or whatever became an expert in it and probably pursued school a little bit more and it was a big wide open space you know today people are hitting the ceiling pretty hard and there's still a lot of lemmings to go over the cliff maybe in the in the mid-20th century and you know when people like a lot of these margin haunters that we'll talk about they were all born in like the early 20th century
0: you know or before
1: or before but you know these are sort of crazy times for science and philosophy and intellectual ideas and it's reflected in the art it's reflected in you know uh, people's day-to-day lives and it's reflected in politics and things like that. And
0: but okay, but then we also have the 21st century phenomenon of the what do they call it? The internet or something. <laughs> so nowadays the margin is too big and occupied, right? Whereas before you might have to stand on your soapbox on the corner and yell about the coming apocalypse. Now you can have a podcast that do it.
1: Yeah, but you just can't have anyone listening.
0: <laughs> well, I don't know. I think there's quite a few shitty podcasts that have a lot of listeners. Well, that's what I
1: mean. Like, if the more listeners you have, the more less, more central you might be. I don't know. Anyway, so
0: that I'm just saying that's a tough question for those of us who like the margin dwellers, because in 2018, it's going to be too easy to find margin dwellers and there's too many of them and I can access 10,000 blogs and a 100 podcasts or whatever Mm -hmm. that are saying marginalized things. Then the question becomes, well, what is it about the margin haunters that you like that makes them any better than all the nuts? That's one of the things that the central the central uh, what's the word for this I'm in Robert anton Wilson fashion pounding them harder than normal tonight <laughs> this the centralized folks have that as an advantage of the dead being wood. in the deadwood the deadwood guys that's an advantage of the institutions yep. that it's you're it's a sieve and you know it You should listen to this person because, well, they have a job at Harvard. They must be smart or whatever. You can't make that move with, well, they have a podcast. (laughs) Surely they're worth listening to. (laughs) They're on the air. (laughs) Well, not anymore Mm -hmm. because anybody can say whatever they want. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, we have to think for ourselves when we're on the margins because we don't have an established canon or expert's telling us what we ought to read and who we ought to take seriously, we have to figure it out for ourselves. Yeah. And I think, at
1: least for some of these people who lived and did the bulk of their work prior to an, the age of the internet, maybe they developed themselves a little bit more thoroughly and for longer before they really... You know, before their message became, you know, stronger and well thought out and whatnot. Now it's like, well, you get a podcast going or whatever, as you were saying, you know, as a young something or other, 20 something, you know, that kind of thing. Pick a topic and then just shoot for the stars or whatever. Uh, Because in a way you kind of have to, if you're going to do it for a living, unless you've got like wealthy parents or, you know, some kind of capital. Uh, and then even then, I suppose if you're going to do a podcast and you want to make a living or something like that, then, cause I mean, that's one of the things that we're talking about is, you know, I don't think Robert Anton Wilson went and did lectures for free. Right. I mean, he, I mean, probably had to make a living somehow, mm-hmm. certainly selling books is one way, but I don't know how well his books sold. Uh, I'm sure they sold something, but I don't know how well. So and if he was going to continue to do that and not work at Playboy as an editor anymore or whatever then you know that was going to be a lot of he, he was going to ha- he was he was going to be a part of a gig economy before there was a gig economy I guess
0: I think that's basically what happened
1: Yeah so but I mean now everybody's kind of in this big gig economy And the more mainstream current events you are, probably, hopefully, the more attention you can gather, even though you're not getting a niche or whatever, but you're still out there. And, uh, yeah, I just think that, you know, with someone like Robert Anton Wilson or any of these other people we're eventually going to talk about, they just could spend a lot more time thinking. And, you know, with someone like Robert Anton Wilson, he survived, you know, something early, polio, you know. Mm in an unconventional way, which really had a huge impact on, you know, the way he thought the rest of his life. Um, I don't
0: know if you have any more you want to say. But... So I tend toward depression, cynicism, darkness. Mm. One of the reasons to like Robin Anton Wilson is that he was the opposite. He called himself multiple times an incorrigible optimist. <laughs> and in part that's more impressive because of the things he overcame like this early childhood illness another thing that he had to overcome was i think she was 15 a young but not too young old enough that you got to know him and care about him daughter got killed in a convenience store robbery or something like that like just a total random shitty situation yeah. and she actually as a interesting side note, was the first head, I think it was just the head, preserved by the Cryonic Society in California or something. His daughter was the first one. Uh, But, yeah, so that's (laughs) another extremely, I imagine, difficult thing to overcome. It wouldn't, like, I imagine that a teenage, young teenager would be, like, the worst time to die or something, because, like, Mm -hmm. it's a even younger than you're like, well, you didn't even know him yet, or they weren't established as who they were going to be, whatever. It's just a bad time. Anyway, so that he's able to be this twinkly-eyed old man that only has good things to say about the world is amazing, (laughs) after these things that he had to live through. Yeah, yeah, for
1: sure. Well, I'm glad you went to Robert Anton Wilson, because I was going to say, if you have anything to say about the general stuff, I was going to turn us back. Yeah. To...
0: And about the... There were a couple of... This is another dimension on which he scores highly, in my mind, is the whole, like, think for yourself thing. A couple of his bumper stickers about that were something like a, a Disciple is an asshole looking for a human being to attach itself to? That kind of thing. Because as someone who played around in this ballpark of mysticism and guruhood and whatnot, he made it very clear that he did not want to be one of those with some of these things. And another one was something about like, well, the only reason that someone would be interested in finding a perfect master is if their aspiration were to be a perfect slave, and you know, fact, he was not didn't want to be, a Osho or a Krishnamurti type, though. So th- these are some of the humorous ways that he was distinguishing himself from that. And he's just it was all about, all you motherfuckers think for yourself, right. He was an anarchist, not only in politics, but in philosophy as well. He didn't want to tell everybody what to think. So
1: what were some of the things that he thought? Like, let's talk about, you know, some of his ideas, or at least the frameworks that he operated out of. You mentioned agnosticism you want to start with that? Is that his the biggest one you would say? like where would
0: you begin? I would say that's the biggest one. And I would not that I have to in this venue, but I would engage in a debate and textual analysis with anyone to defend the claim that that was also his primary purpose goal interest was what he called model agnosticism which was a very, you know, I think we just did a few episodes ago, Nietzsche. He was moderately influenced by Nietzsche, didn't quote him as much as I would like, but I think Nietzsche was maybe the first one to do this, and Wilson the most enthusiastic progenitor of the idea that models are best looked at as works of art and evaluated aesthetically, sort of. Uh, But that also sounds maybe a little bit too far. But... Well, he is haunting the margins. Yeah. And one of the things that he was willing to do was play to a crowd, but he did it in the opposite way that most others do. He will... If you listen to various different interviews that he does in different venues, some of the time he will sound like a pretty sober scientifically oriented straight individual mm-hmm. and sometimes he will sound like an acid-head <laughs> uh, alien abductee nut there's a chameleon to some extent but it's on the surface sure if you i insist if you look closely and that he more than almost anyone else that I've experienced was very precise with his language which makes sense as a general semanticist <laughs> as I mentioned in that episode he's the one that turned me on to that and I really respect that orientation but so that he, I'm saying he'll play to the crowd but his crowd is the Burning Man crowd. That he says things and talks about topics that are even more marginal than his comfortable position because I think, as you were mentioning, well, he's got to sell a book to somebody, right? And make a living somehow <laughs> and somebody's got to pay him to come talk. Uh-huh. So he was playing to that crowd by being a little far out rather than playing to the center. He was playing to the fringe. mm but that his views weren't as fringy as many may suspect. I would say, read the introductions to many of his books. One of the books he published was called Everything is Under Control, and it was basically an encyclopedia of various conspiracy theories oh, well, this guy published a book on conspiracies. Clearly, he's a nut and can be ignored. Read the introduction and the way that he does his cautious, maybe logic epistemology there. Read the introduction and the first chapter to his book, The New Inquisition, which is, in one sense, radical-sounding. It's an attack on what he liked to call fundamentalist materialism. What back then was Psycop and now is CFI, started with Paul Kurtz, now it's Michael Shermer, this whole (laughs) pseudo-skeptic, pop-skeptic, like, we don't like ghosts and gods, but we're not skeptical of beer bottles and tables, you know. Uh, The tyro-skeptics, the babies that don't, Go nearly far enough. Whatever. <laughs> so he wrote a, That book is attacking that. But look at the first chapter of it and how sober and cautious and reasonable it is. Listen to the interview series he did near the end of his life entitled, Robert Anton Wilson Explains Everything, semicolon subtitle, Old Bob Exposes His Ignorance. <laughs> and how reasonable he is in that compared to when he's on one of the subterranean radio stations in Austin or L.A. in 1980, and he's talking about pay do conspiracies and weird shit. He's, he does that stuff, but it's all in the service of this model agnosticism. Okay. Model
1: agnosticism. I mean, you mentioned that, uh, and then,
0: can you go over it one more time? That all we have are models, and that none of them ought to be elevated to certainty. There was a movie made about him and his life, and it was called Maybe Logic. And he takes that phrase from John von Neumann, Which was, and then that, and all, and then he usually moves the maybe logic is three valued true, false, and maybe. Wilson liked to take Korzybski's version, which was the infinite valued logic of probabilities that it's from zero to a hundred, and then we ought to avoid zero and one hundred. And every evaluation ought to be somewhere between one and 99% confidence, (laughs) but to lop off. I'm certain that it is not or that I'm certain that it is. Mm -hmm. So I think if you are in that framework, you're a model agnostic. Everything is just a model. Models are works of art and can be evaluated on many different scales, but that we should leave it in the domain of probabilities. And that's what the basically, I think, the one lecture that I asked you to listen to in prep for this meeting was about. In that one he went through what was it? Mathematics, quantum physics, and something else. And was saying how all of those, if you look at them right, have ended up through this through an evolutionary process of their development of maybe so in math you start with Russell and Whitehead and the logicians and rationalists, and you go through the Brouwer and the intuitionist and whatever and you end up in this position where alright well 1 plus 1 equals 2 is a useful model that works for a lot of purposes but that's not some kind of universal platonic certainty behind it he really enjoyed talking about quantum physics because he really likes science and other and he likes the centrality of the web of mm-hmm. the academic people and pays attention to it but doesn't want he likes quantum physics because that's a place where there are multiple popular and taken seriously models, but that none of them are, yet anyway, considered the certain truth. And one of his intellectual heroes was Niels Bohr and the Copenhagen interpretation of just saying, basically, quantum physics doesn't tell us anything about the universe, it tells us what we can say about the universe. <laughs> And then he also talked a lot about psychology because that was his education and he was buddies with Tim Leary. He talked a lot about another fringe guy that I personally haven't looked into yet, Wilhelm Reich. And (laughs) the... That's
1: Wilhelm Reich. For those of you who, like me, first were like,
0: Wilhelm Reich? (laughs) But it looks... To my eyeballs, like Will Reich. Yeah. But of course, that's just an alternative pronunciation. Mm-hmm. He talked a lot about Reich because apparently there was a scandalous event in American censorship history where I don't know who, what government agency it was, but they, according to Wilson, broke into Reich's laboratory or home or somewhere and destroyed various pieces of equipment. Oh, no. uh, he was de- attempting to develop something called the Oregon Box and access some unknown type of energy in the universe. Uh-oh. Uh oh. They broke the Oregon Boxes and whatnot. They literally burned books and imprisoned this guy, and he died in prison, I guess. Wow. Uh, because he was saying things that somebody didn't like. Hmm, that's no good. Well, Wilson doesn't think it's good because he thinks whatever Reich was developing another model, and maybe some parts of it were right, some parts of it might have been stupid. But whatever, it's a guy attempting some science and making a model, and we should probably not burn the books. We just, yeah, wait to see what happens. I'm losing all the threads, but Wilson would like it. Couple of dawdlers sitting around <laughs> drinking booze and trying to talk about it. what was the thread?
1: I was asking, uh, you know, initially, like what is the big the his his primary framework or big idea framework that he was operating out of? It sounds like it's this model agnosticism thing. And then you went into discussing mostly that, and then you had some essentially some examples of, you know, how, you know, he's kind of a little more serious, you know, he's a wolf in sheep's clothing or a sheep in wolf's clothing. I'm not quite, I think probably the other. So it sounds to, to on the surface that his crowd is the burning man crowd when really, you know, he spent more time, working with the texts of those who are more towards the, the center, the centrality of it. And, uh, but he needed to sell books and he needed to be able to make a living. And so, uh, because he wasn't really part of any legitimate institution or whatever, he's just himself out there. He has this stuff that he's sold and, you know, he needs to make a living somehow. And he wants to do it this way, not, you know, as a, Postal worker or whatever, and so he needs to be able to appeal to somebody, and so he's appealing to these people who are <clears throat> maybe wanting this kind of crazy stuff because maybe they don't spend any time being serious about it, and uh, you know. So there's that element. So you're saying, so, and I yeah. was saying, oh, he's a chameleon. You're like, ah, oh, but it it's not that deep. And I was thinking, what do you think? A chameleon's organs change. The, the pattern of the wood, you know, the whole point of a chameleon is that it's only skin deep or whatever. It's not all the way through. So this sounds like this model agnosticism and the seriousness he took, um, the with which he took, you know, uh, modern science, um, was kind of the core of this person, Robert Anton Wilson.
0: That would be my claim. Okay. That even though many people on the surface might be look at him and lump him in with Art Bell or whatever, and that he was just a psychedelic nut conspiracy theorist person. I don't think that is at all correct. I think the only reason that he talked about and wrote about conspiracies is that that is a place where one can emphasize this version of agnosticism that there are some conspiracies that are reasonable you know that there's the far out ones and the paranoids and chupacabras yeah (laughs) cryptozoologists he talked about cryptozoology a fair amount too one of the people that he often referenced I don't know if he respected was this Charles Fort I think the Fortean society is still around and they may even have a publication but was a person in the early 20th century that was investigating things like falls of frogs from the sky and bigfoot and bigfoot and whatever <laughs> Loch Ness and um as just a source of ambiguity yeah. One of the phrases that he liked and would often use is I have a high tolerance for ambiguity and want to <laughs> raise other people's threshold there.
1: Yeah, it's weird because it's like he's he's got all the stuff that I would say the more centered sciences anyway have in terms of when they're, you know, when you're behind closed doors. Nobody claims any kind of certainty and that's why people do statistics you know to leave room to be wrong in the right wrong true false dichotomy of things um but just you know you know say i'm i'm confident to such an extent you know or whatever statistics has all this language in it that you like to use i would think that you would be a great statistician if you liked math um <laughs> but like Uh, so it all sounds reasonable, but I said the word confidence and I kind of want to say most, here's my thinking. Confidence is either an illusion or it's a delusion, you know? And I think, and I'm going to pull up the map is not the territory stuff, that for many scientists, even though they do the statistical work, and they 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 appreciate the statistical, um, you know the the what statistics gives them in terms of how well they are, their models hold up or whatever to scrutiny and the data and all that kind of stuff, that they might be deluding themselves and. For Wilson, it's like the confidence was an illusion because he seems confident to me. He doesn't seem like a rattled individual up on stage. Like ha, ha, I don't know, you know. Like he's like he's he's a storyteller as much as he is anything, right? I mean, he's he spins a long yarn, you know, and he sits there with his New York accent or whatever. I can't do it, but um. Like he would like if he said worse, it would sound like voice, you know, right, it has that quality, and he just kind of calmly talk about things and da 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 da
0: and but yet he is as you're saying, like very uncertain, you know well, would this not just be the difference between social confidence and epistemic confidence that he was confident in the sense of hand me a microphone at the wedding and I'll do the toast or whatever, Ah, you know? Oh, I've got this room. No problem. But he wouldn't make confident pronouncements or judgments about answers to difficult questions. Definitely. I, I think that's definitely part of it. Yeah.
1: But the part that would be social would be the illusion, right? Um, the the part that's more epistemic or whatever, as you were saying, would be more the delusion, like when you're super confident. Like, it's not that way. It's this way. We have the data, you know? And it's like, okay, we have some data, and you have, to, and that data sounds like it backs up whatever the claims you're making. But then, you know, as seems to be always the case, something comes along and knocks that out of the park, or we get a more complete data set or something like that, and it doesn't... It only tells part of the story. It doesn't tell the whole thing. And we still don't have the whole thing, but we have more of it or no. no, on, that kind of thing. So in that sense, it's like he somehow transformed this, again, like what I was saying, behind closed doors, what happens, he's transformed it into a more social exercise, perhaps. He's taking it to the crowd and taking it beyond the doors or something and taking it seriously, but not. But it's like he understands that in order to tell a crowd, something that would happen behind closed doors at a uh, thesis defense or whatever, (laughs) that like, you got to add some humor in there or they won't pay attention. You know, they won't care
0: about, you know, all the hedging that goes on. Hmm. Since I'm also, on the wrong side of that door when it closes, I never know how much to trust you when that's your report of what's happening on the other side of the door. Mm -hmm. Because you seem to be... to often report to me that that's what happens inside science, on the, the, the esoteric picture. If you have been initiated and allowed into the temple that I would then see that when we are, when we put our black robes on and light the candles and uh, paint the pentagram on the floor, we talk in very uncertain terms. But the rest of us out here, ignorant idiots, are encounter science journalists more often than scientists, uh-huh. or scientists with their... Microphone on the lapel where they probably behave and talk differently than they do in the basement chambers. So it sounds to us through the journalists and the microphones like science is very confident often. So to hear the report about, oh, yeah, we're all just statisticians and all of us are already. Korzybski and in the sense, you know, we're all one to ninety-nine. We never go zero to a hundred.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's not
0: the public picture of science in twenty eighteen.
1: No, it isn't. But yeah, that's because I think that scientists are afraid that if they went out there like Wilson, that they would be treated like Wilson, and they'd become margin hunters. And there are I mean, perhaps enough cases of scientists being considered quote-unquote eggheads and to an extent sort of irrelevant to -to day-to-day activities hey well the mail gets delivered on time I don't need a scientist to deliver the mail do I you know like it's the same old thing like well I'm learning all this math in my fourth grade class but what's that gonna do me you know I'm not gonna use this elsewhere you know why bother you know I think there's a there's a lot of anxiety and fear in the scientific community about how they will be judged And so, it makes sense to me that in the family, when the doors are shut and it's dinner time, they behave differently than when Mm -hmm. they're out at church.
0: Yeah. I'm willing to believe that there's a a lot of that that goes on. And part of it might be... I'm here to report it! No, (laughs) I'm joking. One of the cynical spins on it might be that that's what their publicist or agent told them to do, because well, you just told me you want an invite to Bill Maher. You just told me you wanted Don Lemon to call you up and put you on CNN. If your presentation is more along the lines of, well, you know, nobody knows anything, and maybe the CIA killed JFK, and maybe there's aliens at Roswell, and, you know, it's all in the domain of the percentages that you're not going to get the prestigious gigs you want. Well, more than that,
1: you won't even probably get to do the science because if you're running grants for the National Institutes of Health or National Science Foundation, you're going to be like, I'm probably wrong, but uh, right, that's not going to work. And so I then have a
0: question I'd like to maybe pursue and see what happens. Yeah. Are you going to get the money over the other chimp that says, "I know where the watering hole is. Follow me." Well, one of the quote-unquote
1: unethical things that apparently gets done in science is that they'll pay for their next research. No, no, they'll how do they do it? They do the research, it's complete, and then they report how confident they are. About whatever the outcomes were in the scientific research, in their next grant, they'll get money for that grant or for that research, but actually do other research instead. Mm. So there's well, that that's quote,
0: nice, quote unquote, an well,
1: like- ethical way of doing. That's the other Nelson thing. People always like underrate scientists Canada, yeah. as if they can't like figure <laughs> shit out. But so they're like, hmm, if I do this, you know, it, if if anyone finds out, then I'm in trouble. But if they don't, then, you know, and that's the whole thing about, like, that's the whole gotcha community in science. You know, they're like, we can't repeat your, you know, research. You're a sham. Stanford experiment, sham. You know, like, and then you kind of get to build your own name on the the sham aspect, too. So there's that as well. All of the, and of course, the biggest, not biggest, but some really big stories in science, are like you know um the f- fraud and and those individuals that still stand by the thing even though that it's been just dis- even though people are pretty confident that it's a fraud like the whole uh thing uh, connection between vaccines and autism and stuff like that anyway
0: you telling me that conspiracy is false too I'm saying it's
1: false. I'm saying that people are just pretty confident it's not, uh... <laughs> yeah, good job. There going, you go. Yeah. Anyway, so, back to Raw. He has this model agnosticism... Uh, model agnosticism um, as a Which core, apparently is how science already works. Well, I imagine, wonder where he fucking got it from. Um... It's not like he came up with this whole way of looking at things out of the blue. I'm sure he was inspired. As you've mentioned, he pointed you to a lot of different people. And a lot of those people, like Korzybski, the general semantics guy, was very much attuned to science. Like, uh, what episode number is that? Eight. Wow. How do you know that? (laughs) I, I swear, people. Like, we record these things. I edit them. And then I'm like, Done. You're like, I'd never listen to them again. I'm like, oh, shit.
0: That sounds very pleasing to me, and I envy that. You never go back to things and regret them.
1: Oh, Jesus. Well, I guess if I did go back, I would. Um. Okay, so model agnosticism is his core... Okay. That's the
0: core message and lesson, in okay. my opinion, of Wilson. As you're saying, I don't think, which is kind of funny... Because I like this and I like Wilson. I don't know that he was an extremely original thinker. I don't think he has a big long list of his own ideas. I think he was more of an exponent and popularizer and arranger of... I mean, maybe he was more original in his fictional work, but even that to me is at least moderately derivative. I don't know. I still like it, but I don't know that he was a very novel thinker but he was a writer yeah and being a writer a good writer a
1: writer with lots of things that someone like such as yourself might call bumper stickers later you know years and years later he clearly had a way with words and communication
0: yeah he was a meme smith
1: yeah and so he was able to bring things to people that otherwise might not get to them yep and so, uh, and he did it at the margins, right? I mean, he may not have been sitting there coming up with his own ideas, but then, shit, we were already talking about a couple episodes ago of Nietzsche, you know, is it he's being grokked by people like Korjibski and whatnot, or is he grokking them? Anyway, it Doesn't I don't remember. Uh, whiskey. Um. So, but, you know, I mean, even then, you know, it's like, well, how original is Korzybski, you know? How original is anybody? Oh. Mm.
0: Well, I, yeah. I mean, I don't yeah. know for sure, but I, yeah. Uh, yeah. from what I have been exposed to, I would call Korzybsky an original, very original. Yeah, and then Wilson more as somebody who appreciated and disseminated Korżybsky's ideas. Yeah, well, yeah. which is also an important skill.
1: Yeah, I mean, and he was also
0: doing things in his own right. Maybe his, he didn't have
1: original ideas, but it seems to me like he had original actions. Wilson. Yeah, and formulations. Yeah. So that's good enough, in my opinion, to haunt the margins, because Mm -hmm. people are like, no, listen to him, he'll corrupt your children, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Socrates, or etc. So, um, what are some of the other things then that he could be known for by somebody if they were listening to this and they were familiar with him? So what else is is there to talk about
0: with respect to this guy, Robert Anton Wilson? I would never have heard of Gregory Hill or Carrie Thornley, were it not for Robert Anton Wilson, and his popularization and perhaps expansion on Discordianism, especially in the Illuminatus trilogy. I... So I can't, yeah. Like I never know whether to attribute things directly to Wilson or to his friends, and then he made them popular. (laughs) But one of the things that has made it into the wider culture, such that even Jim Carrey acts in the movie, is the twenty-three enigma, Mm. right? Like everybody's heard of the twenty-three is a special number, right? And I think that that was made holy by Discordianism, which was invented by the two people mentioned earlier hill and thornley in earlier than wilson but that he made a big that he made it popular and made it big okay. and became pope bob or whatever <laughs> and i don't i don't know what role he played in the invention of the church of the subgenius which is another thing that most people have heard of by now, and seen the posters of the well-groomed guy with the beard. I don't know to what extent Wilson invented that or just was a part of that crowd. But anyway, he was involved in a lot of these alternative and satire religions. I think he did invent the RNA-DNA, the reformed non-Aristotelian Druids of North America. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. And other of these satire religions. Uh-huh. Uh, because again, like he didn't take the Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris Hitchens route of getting pissed off and railing against, or even the Nietzsche route of like, you know, fuck Christianity. Yeah. But he had a lot of disdain for religion and religions. We but certainly he had a lot of opportunities
1: too, to, right. I mean, cause he, he lived through world war two and, uh, obviously. And then he obviously was living through the sixties and all the political and civil unrest going on throughout that period. All the craziness Christ all fucking Sam Harris has is nine eleven to go crazy <laughs> about. Hmm. He'd be like, well, I disagree, and I'm sure he does. Reagan I'm getting sure. shot is really traumatic.
0: <laughs> Sorry. I think a lot of bathroom wall memes are Robert Anton Wilson's fault. Really? And I don't, <laughs> I don't think that most of the people who write them are aware of the genealogy.
1: Oh my God. What? <laughs> this is incredible. I had no idea this was going
0: to even be a thing. Like, what? Give me what? Come on. Well, I oh I'm uh, I didn't know I was going to be requested for a big list.
1: Well, I'm not talking
0: about a big list, but just like give me something. The in Illuminatus was, I think that's where it was established. It's all murky and occult, you see, with this guy. But anyway, well, I mean, as he said he's thing- comfortable with ambiguity or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> so there's Operation Mindfuck, which I think is very interesting. Huh? In the Illuminati trilogy is a ancillary character named Markov Cheney, which, as a statistician, you may or may not recognize. Okay. Uh, but he was a midget who was very frustrated that he couldn't get sex from the Gigantuses, from regular-sized w- women, female humans. Okay. He was resentful of that, and channeled it through a process of, me of like meming. He would hide in empty coffee urns in businesses, like uh, y- like you'd have a a water cooler. Well, you might also have a large office stainless steel coffee dispenser. Right? Weird. So by the end of the day, that would be empty. When all the people had... So he would go and... Because apparently he was small enough, at least in the fictionalized... Yeah, I was going to say. (laughs) That he'd fit inside of this coffee apparatus Uh and wait until everyone had left the office and then come out and put up signage that was transgressive. Something like... He'd go into a fancy upscale clothing store, maybe... And put a sign on the wall at night that said, uh, you know, No spitting, the management or something like that. And that for the purpose of, and then the people that look at it later would be like, Wait a minute, people have been spitting in here? Like why why would you even need to tell me not to do that? And they would uh-huh. get offended and think that it was a lower class place than it was, and then they would oh. stop coming there, what it so that this was one mode of Markov Cheney undermining Capitalism, by just putting up signs, everything. Okay, would be Markov like, Cheney is in like Markov chain. Yeah, like a Markov chain. Oh, sorry, that's a, there's a lot of. Well, you say Cheney and I think Dick Cheney. Well, that's and uh, unfortunate but anachronistic. That's... Yeah, <coughs> this was written in like sixty nine through seventy one or something like that, and published in the early seventies before Dick Cheney was still a thing. But he his had heart a heart back then. Point, yeah, you know. Exactly. <laughs> he had his first heart. Anyway, as soon as one is aware that Operation Mindfuck exists, it's very easy to see it in operation. And as I have been, you know, oh, by the way, Doddlers listeners, this is another Doddlers in person live because oh, I'm yeah. still in Portland. Right. Oregon. So as I'm wandering around Portland, Oregon all day and seeing all of the. Stickers and graffiti and shit around town Mm -hmm. that people around here like to display. It's very easy to imagine the fictional midget Markov Cheney (laughs) jumping out of the pages of the Illuminatus Trilogy and putting certain wall art in bathrooms in Portland. Okay. But just... So, if you buy into the satirical conspiracy that operation mindfuck is occurring and that there's a bunch of disinformation agents out there spreading around transgressive memes to blow the minds of the establishment
1: oh yeah
0: you start seeing it everywhere and that's what the 23 enigma is all about so he you pick some what number sounds the most random you know like what there's nothing we don't have associations yet with a number let's say 23 it's a whole satire of numerology i think which of course the centrality establishment doesn't even know exists or need to pillory because of course we know that there's nothing to it like astrology numerology etc but then you've got the whole discordian history of the 23 with the law of fives and the five is special and the twenty-three and the peace sign is the two fingers up and three sign three fingers oh down. And 23 oh, and the five, and five. And oh, the five is a Roman numeral for the two fingers that are up and really, oh, so you, yeah. like oh, as soon God. as you start oh, five. This is like the like I was getting <laughs> at with the Wells Orson Wells movie at the beginning. Uh huh. Wilson wants to use these far out, trippy, purposefully foolish satires. To try to draw you into being willing to make this move. Uh That once you're looking for something, once you put the glasses on and look through the lenses and your model, you will start seeing it everywhere. That's what 23 is about. And it has worked for me, personally, and it works, I think, for most who do this. Start watching for 23s, and you will see them everywhere. Okay,
1: but... And I know that we love to say like, oh, humans are a pattern-seeking animal or whatever. So would we say that that's just, it would, all right, would he say that's just all our ideas, you know, writ large, being a model agnosticist that he is? Like, would he say like, well, yeah, the 23 theory, general relativity, it's all fucking same thing. You know, like once you
0: are looking for relativity, you will see it everywhere. Is that what he's saying? If I understand the question, I think that I would say that, depending on what radio show he's on, he might say that, but that he doesn't think it. If he's on a different radio show, he would be willing to say, well, yeah, the that there is some mystical significance to the number 23 has a 1% probability, or what, you know, some very low, and that the theory of general relativity has more application to the universe we live in, then the 23 phenomenon has a 99% probability. So, though a Wilson detractor would be able to find him saying those are equivalently likely, he didn't really think they are. When he said that, if he said it, he's playing to the fringe. What he really thinks is that there are degrees of probability and confidence, and that the 23 thing is just a fun joke and that general relativity is likely more likely to be correct Hmm. why why if
1: you're seeing things everywhere and like why not i mean obviously not everybody probably has ingested relativity so they might not be able to see it everywhere as simply as they can numerology example of 23 or whatever from the scordian group or whatever, but why not still just have a sample of one Albert Einstein? Oh, he sees it everywhere, folks. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I get what you're saying that he says that, that you don't think he would think that, but why? Like, why, why not? Why not just have it be in everything if he's a true model agnostic or whatever? I mean, When I think about model agnosticism, I think about a uniform distribution where the frequency or likelihood or whatever uh, is the same across the board. I guess that's what I think of. Uh, But I could be attributing poorly uh,
0: that idea um, into my headspace. I think that the only or major point of it is just... To lop off zero and one hundred from your yeah, and I think I'm
1: I, I'm calling what I'm talking about is like know, model egalitarianism or something like that. right,
0: like we've talked about <laughs> yeah. before on this right. show the epistemic egalitarianism right, right, right that everything is considered equally likely.
1: So then agnosticism, as you've mentioned, between one and ninety nine mm-hmm. on the uh, probability scale or whatever, is just saying that some have a greater likelihood than others. But that uh, he's never going to be fully certain. Okay. Right. Gotcha. Never mind. I have no more problems. Hopefully all <laughs> 4.9 listeners are like, yeah, dude, fuck. He said it 20 times. Why don't you get it now? <laughs> I said it one time earlier. Why don't you get it now? The word is whiskey. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. So model that seems like more model agnosticism
0: then. 23 numerology and all that kind of stuff. Correct. I see that mostly as satire. That the purpose of talking about that is just to take an extreme case and say, well, look, obviously there's nothing mystical about the number 23. But if you are able to play that game for a while and be impressed wow, I, th- there's something about putting those glasses on that really for uh, temporarily made me think there was something special about the number 23. Uh-huh. That then you should be able to move from there to, but obviously there isn't really. And if those are your two premises, 23s look impressive to me, but there's nothing special about 23s. The conclusion of that is, well then you aren't a very good evaluator, are you? And you ought doubt yourself Mm. more than you do now. Another meme of Wilson's that I really liked. He said, imagine you are in Marrakesh at the marketplace. You're wandering down and you're looking at all the delicious fruits and tapestries and jewelry. And then from one of the stalls calls to you a capitalist. And they say, come here, dear. I've got (laughs) an item to sell you. It's called a correct answer machine. (laughs) Wouldn't everyone like to have a correct answer machine? Ask it any question you wish, and it will tell you the right answer. So perhaps before you buy, he lets you try it out. Because it's fair. And you ask it ten questions and they happen to be somehow socially and politically related. And the results that you get from this machine accord perfectly with what you know very well to be Marxist propaganda. Every time you ask it a question about the means of production, it tells you exactly (laughs) what Mr. Marx would have probably said in those moments. And then you become quite suspicious and you tell the person who's trying to literally get your money to to buy this machine. That's not a correct answer machine. This is a Marxist propaganda machine. Fuck you, buddy. I'm not buying. <laughs> and you keep walking. And someone else yells from the next booth. Ah, oh, no, 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 They're, of course, full of shit, but I have a real correct answer machine. And you step up there and ask it the same questions and it responds with perfect libertarian party 2018 America propaganda. And you say, well, that's not a correct answer machine. That's just libertarian propaganda machine. (laughs) In that situation, we are all able to see that if we're in that mindset, if that's the frame and that's the grid that we're operating out of, we would be very skeptical of someone who told us, I have a machine that gives you only correct answers. But that we're really bad at it when... All of us have installed by our primate evolutionary heritage a correct answer machine in all of our heads and it's just what we think about shit. Mm -hmm. That almost everyone, almost all the time when encountering a problem thinks about it for a minute and looks off into space then comes back and says, I know what to do or I know the answer to that question and as someone who has hosted a bunch of public intellectual discussion groups i'm very familiar with this gaze that people get (laughs) when i attempt to ask them what i think is a deep and important question and they maybe think about it for five seconds while looking off into space and then come back and very confidently tell me oh no i know exactly why that's wrong because there are triangles uh whatever they say
1: oh my god this lasting (laughs) impression lasting
0: impression Your formative years. Because they think they have in their head a correct answer machine, and all they need to do is consult it. And then they know what to say and how to behave. And in that circumstance, when you're not at the market being a skeptical consumer, but rather just operating naturally as a chimp in the world, we tend to think that we all have correct answer machines in our head. And one of the phrases that Wilson has used to describe his purpose in life and why he's out there on the lecture circuit is to dismantle disassemble unplug people's correct answer machines and I'm just like fucking A man that's I love it <laughs> I would like to carry on this work yeah um all right
1: okay well I'm looking at I'm like the time all right so we should move on. We've talked about some of his ideas. We've, we've talked about a lot of things, actually, oddly enough. And the time Well, is I actually, would hope
0: so, because Wilson was a generalist. There
1: you go. Generalist about a very specific thing, model agnosticism, because I pretty much see it everywhere. It's like 23. What else do we need to talk about with this fringy margin haunter? And any margin hunter, I feel like there's a next phase to this particular thing and we've not really worked it out. Like, where do we go next from here? You know? So that the next time we do this exactly right.
0: With certainty. I don't have any way I want to... <laughs> All I want to do now is find some way to shut your ability to look at clocks off so that you aren't Aww. so concerned with But we're approaching that. One thing that... So, yeah, I'm totally dismissing this where we're going next. I'm just going to talk. Please. Yeah, that's totally fine. (laughs) That was another thing that I thought of earlier and got lost somewhere in the foam of the breaking wave. Another thing (laughs) that I would propose as a reason to be marginalized in the way that we currently operate as an intellectual culture is merely being a generalist. I think our current institutional setups are geared towards specialization. And that if one resists that in any way, if instead they're like, well, yeah, but I'm interested in psychology and James Joyce and quantum physics Uh and epistemology and humor and writing fiction and history and... You just keep adding things that that's a reason to be shoved to the margins. Because the way to be central right now is to deeply investigate a very particular, trivial, perhaps, problem.
1: Mm. It's interesting you say that because it's like you would think it'd be the other way around. You'd think somebody who went super specific and was just lost in this one little thing would be the least impressive right and that the yeah, generalist i would think that yeah, yeah i mean i was thinking you know that would be the case but instead we're impressed at how deeply someone might go into a subject area and in part i think how that is manifest is through the experience of when somebody is deeply embedded in some Research or some, you know, they're a specialist in a particular area, it reflects one's ignorance all the more. And so you take maybe that person a lot more seriously because the words coming out of their mouth, the confidence upon which they're talking about them, because they spend all this time on this one specific slice of the world, it just strikes maybe others who aren't doing that as not just a specialist, but that it's special, you know, that it is unique and different and they have their hand or their finger on the pulse of something that like, I never will or something along those lines. But this guy who's a generalist, I mean, come on, like any of us are interested in history and, and, uh, we're all interested in you know spewing whatever psychology memes we know and you know if you're a generalist maybe you're not as devoted as somebody who is a specialist maybe you're not uh maybe there isn't as much strength in your arguments because um you're not going as deep as somebody who's a specialist or something like that Maybe that's what people think. I don't know. But I would wonder if maybe there's some of that, that sort of anxiety around the ignorance part that somebody knows a lot about something and you don't. And if somebody knows a little about a lot of things, well, I know a little about a lot of things, so they're not much different than me. So what makes them so special? You know, like, I think, I wonder if that's the cause or the underlying aspect of it as to why somebody might be, Haunting the margins as a generalist may not be taken as seriously by as many people as somebody who's in the center, digging deep into a very, very small area.
0: I like the way you just said that, and it reminds me of one of the problems from philosophy of mind that I encounter as someone who, future episode... Ah in that domain, wants to deny that there is such a thing as consciousness, blah, blah, blah. One of the reasons why that's a hard task is that everyone thinks they're an expert. Because everyone thinks they are conscious. And they're like, well, don't walk in and tell me there's no such thing as consciousness. I experience it every day. I'm experiencing it right now. Yeah, I very well know. And so that makes that the eliminativism task very hard in psychology of mind, philosophy of mind. I think that's what I was hearing when you were saying, well, everybody thinks they know a little bit about everything. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense to me. I think that maybe they do, and I've never thought about it in those terms. And so that they're suspicious of generalists because most people, or quote-unquote everyone, thinks they already are a generalist. Yeah. So they don't need you. I'd rather go to the lecture from the very detailed neuropsychologist that wants to tell me about the brain region that is activated when people view works of art or whatever. You know, They want the specifics to improve their ability to be generalist because I'm already a generalist. That it's kind of a market-oriented, democratic, capitalistic version of a motivation to be a specialist. That everybody views themselves as a generalist. I don't know if that's right, but I like that proposal. Yeah. Because I would misanthropically think the opposite. Whatever, you think you're a generalist, but you're a nothingist. You don't know shit about anything. (laughs) So you still need to listen to the generalist that's good you're
1: nothing well or they're a specialist but it's not a very deep specialization like well I work at a particular company and that company sells a specific kind of car or whatever and it does it's engine this way and not like any other company but then maybe all the engines are a little different one way or the other but it's not like you're you know like you were saying, like neuropsychologists wanting to see what brain regions light up when people look at art, or not even art, like when they look at Rembrandt, you know, or whatever, right? They get even more. And they specific. play
0: Grand Theft Auto three.
1: Yeah, it's very so, specific. Yeah, not not Grand Theft Auto two, not Grand Theft Auto sixteen. I would know, but um, yeah, I I don't know, and I, and so there is that generalist tendency and I wonder if that's another component. So obviously then in the ways that he's a generalist is that he has these this great a, amount of interest. James Joyce, psychology, quantum physics, general semantics. I mean it's a lot of different things. It's not I kind of think one of the things I sort of pride us on is that each episode's a little different. The last episode was about my idea of episodic synchrony and diversification and a mechanism for that initiation of that. And now we're talking about Robert Anton Wilson model yeah. well, that's and model agnosticism. like that's pink, how pink. I
0: view myself and hopefully this podcast. Yeah, I like generalism. I think there's a lot of good things about it and want to disseminate that. Like I'm happy that our podcast so far, Flips back and forth between climate change and Nietzsche. Yeah. You know, that's... Right. We've done emergence. We've
1: done all these different things, and they're not all just one uh, thread. Uh, What's the phrase? You know, like snowball, you know, where they just keep accumulating. Um, There are, of course, I'm sure, you know, there are podcasts out there that are kind of more like that than this one, I suppose. I don't know. The podcasts that shall not be named. <laughs> Mostly because I don't remember
0: what they're called. I know.
1: Sorry, folks.
0: Another reason. Nice. People are marginalized. I'm like, it's it. Uh, you got 10 minutes. <laughs> Stop looking at the goddamn
1: clock. I'm going to look at the clock. There's cl- no time. I'm not even going to look at you. Time doesn't exist. I'm just going to look at the clock. Want me to count it off? I'll count it off just
0: to annoy you. While you looked at it, I bet the first thing you're going to say is 23. Uh, (laughs) Sweet. Drugs is another way to violate centralist taboos. Yeah. Consciousness alteration as some might call it. Right?
1: Yes and no though, right? Here's my... Here's what I'll just say when you said that. It made me think it's like well, there's so many drugs that they're trying to sell you. It's just that there's other drugs that they haven't figured out how to Oh, okay. manage, good. you know what I mean? Yep. But they're all in some ways going to alter your brain in some way. So if you're taking some kind of antipsychotic or even if you're taking like lithium or whatever, it's kind of alter things. So why are these other ones so weird or whatever? Like even the drugs themselves seem to haunt the margins in a way, like psilocybin as compared to, I don't know, capsaicin or whatever, which is the stuff in hot peppers, you know, and I don't know if you'd consider that a drug necessarily, but it certainly alters your brain for a little while. You're like, oh shit, fuck, my tongue's on fire, you know, or whatever, you know, why, why, why some, I mean, that's the big thing with this particular theme. Why some things and not others? And so, but drugs is a part of it for sure. And I think for some of these Margin haunters. It was kind of I almost want to think political for a while there. I don't know what it is now, especially some of these people that were you know living through the sixties and seventies. Right.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I like that point a lot, and I think it's a Wilsonian point. It's a generally semantic point. It's all this good stuff. There, drugs is high level abstraction category term that. The included and excluded members are going to vary at any given socio-cultural political point. I mean, what? Pot didn't become illegal until 1937 or whatever. Even in America, the majority of our history has legalized marijuana. And we're probably going to go back there soon. We appear to be on the path toward it. The Domino effect! Oh no! No, I'm sorry. So, is marijuana a drug or not? And, and yeah. like you were saying, it's some other random food-based chemical that doesn't have obvious psychogenic effects, but clearly has behavioral effects, and like changes your psychology in the sense that it alters your focus. Yeah. Like, right now, this is what I <laughs> prioritize. <laughs> Holy shit. Give me some sugar and milk. Right. So, maybe it isn't really even about, maybe that's too simplistic to say drugs is a reason people are marginalized, because most of the people, even in the center, are doing various are. psychoactive substan- uh, chemical effects.
1: Well, apparently, if you li- if you listen to the news, a lot of people are dying of drug overdoses a lot, and they're not kids; they're like, you know, in their fifties and sixties and shit.
0: Anyway, so part of it would be, I guess, or, or so maybe we can go too far the other direction, talking. Positively about illegal drugs. Mm. That's why I thought political, to
1: an extent, mm-hmm. that there's political rivalries going on, and the drugs just happen to be, you know, the flashpoints or whatever, the lightning rods
0: of revolution. Because obviously, coffee's okay, right? You and I, say, I would say that alters coffee, my brain. Here's what, and that, you know, and then alcohol is kind of in between. It's legal but more highly regulated and a little bit taboo, but most of us are cool with it. And then marijuana is kind of, okay, that's in between alcohol and LSD or psilocybin or whatever, which themselves are different from cocaine and heroin and which are different from paint thinner and (laughs) arsenic
1: or what You know, and that... And some of these have uh, varying degrees of, I guess, across a collective slice of people, they have varying degrees of addictiveness, apparently. So anything like meth or heroin is going to potentially be more addictive than, say, marijuana or perhaps even psilocybin. I don't know if I've heard of anyone actually being addicted to things like that. It's usually, you know, heroin
0: or... right. I don't know that the. I have no idea. I've never heard LSD style things have addiction to them.
1: Yes, I'm not sure if that's a quality. um, I don't know if it's you know like maybe it's it there is some neurotransmitter action that's going on in some drugs that isn't necessarily going on in others in the same way. But either way, regardless, if you take out that component and you make it more just this you know, representation of some political political faction or whatever that is potentially convincing to others for whatever reason, then it's scary to the establishment, potentially, especially if all someone has to do to gain some insight to vote against you is to go take a drug or something. I don't know. I don't know what people... It's chaos. It's craziness. Ha! Ah, kids are on drugs. You know, I don't have control of the voters and the kids. And, right? I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's just. And then these guys, some of these margin haunters, are doing that because they're, again, just open to experience.
0: Mm -hmm. So, what what would you say? I don't know the way to characterize it properly, but I think there's something here because a bunch of the margin dwellers share this from. Wilson to McKenna to Castaneda, there's a heavy common thread here of the way that these individuals interact with consciousness altering substances uh-huh. that seems to push them out from the center, that makes them dirty and dangerous and out of the clubhouse.
1: Well, I wonder if that's just a symptom of the cause or whatever, you know? Like, are these individuals just really open and refuse to give in to taboo, dogma, fear, stigma, all that kind of stuff, and just are willing to go there? Like, is it something about them? And part of me also wonders, okay, so they're open, but what makes them potentially open? You know, we mentioned Wilson had polio. Didn't he die of some post-polio yeah, syndrome? Yeah, post-polio
0: syndrome, whatever, yeah. Side effects. Of-
1: Which sounds crappy. Because uh, if you look yeah. at pictures of the guy when he was old, I mean, he was, you know, I wouldn't say he was he fat or anything, even- but he was a solid individual. And then when he
0: was old, he was like, I mean, literally, skeleton, like he skeleton. But he looked worse than the age, right? Because yeah. wasn't he only maybe 75 or something? Right. But he looked like a 90-something-year-old. He me. looked like he was rapidly declining
1: physically, if not mentally, which I don't think he was because it seems like a lot of the correspondences that he had were quite humorous. and Up to the end. He the thought end. that death was absurd and things like that. And so it's hard to take it seriously. But uh, didn't even McKenna uh, have lifelong headaches uh, or migraines? He suffered from, you know, pain in that particular way. I don't know if that is a big deal or not, but I do wonder if some of these formative experiences also affect how open they are or not, one way or the other to experience. Maybe some of them just are. I don't know what makes Timothy Leary... As a psychiatrist, more open to experience than another psychiatrist, you know, to a cohort that he's with going through med school. So these are the kinds that I I do wonder if there's an element there that kind of doesn't push them to the edge, but it just opens them up to, it gives them a perspective that maybe a lot of people don't necessarily always get. Maybe not. I don't know. But I think openness is the big one. I think openness allows some of these people to be generalists and to not, again, just be, you know, narrowing their focus. Their focus is quite wide. And then drugs—they're open to drugs. They're open to try things out, like you were saying, like to experiment, to see what they, where they can go with that. You know, at least at the time for some of these
0: people, anyway. I don't know.
1: Some of these others, like uh, I don't know if we're ever going to do Alistair
0: Crowley. Is that? His name? Those who call me Crowley wish to treat me foully. (laughs) My name is Aleister Crowley because that I am holy. Oh, Alistair Crowley. Okay,
1: well, we'll have to repeat that one next time we get around to it. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, isn't someone like Alistair Crowley also another individual who seems to be quite open to alternatives um, in a way that maybe other people aren't. I don't know. I don't know. It's like if you're out there and you're searching for answers, whatever it is, however it is, you're just trying to make sense of the world. Why is it that some people make sense of the world by going into areas that are kind of more seemingly chaotic and not they're disorganized? Well, how is it that some make sense of the world through adventure and others make sense of the world through conformity? Because these people all seem to be adventurers, you know, who we've mentioned so
0: far, but Wilson in particular as well. Yeah, well, good luck explaining Harlan then. That's true. Because personally and in my daily life, not that anyone gives a shit, No, no one does. I'm not very, I don't think I qualify as an open person. I'm much more reserved and... Closed off and fearful and resistant and, but intellectually, I gra- gravitate toward the fringes. But yeah, I don't
1: know. It's a good point to make. Do any of these other people seem to have?
0: I've been trying to think. Like, <laughs> if, they don't. Of the people that I put on the fringe, do any of them share that? trait with me, of the, the shyness or reservedness, and I don't know that I have any examples. Yet. Not that there aren't any,
1: but... If given the opportunity to go do psilocybin in the jungles of Costa Rica with Bushmasters sliding by and shit, would you do it?
0: I doubt it. <laughs> but Wilson might, right? Right. I mean, the from... You know, I only know him through the public persona or whatever, but I think that he'd be like, fuck yeah, man, let's do let's it. Let's do it. Yeah. And I don't have
1: that <laughs> enthusiasm. So you're not a haunter of the margins. You're a, uh, what are you? A margin picker? I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Well, you do it more than I do, I suppose. Although I would say I'd be more adventurous than you. I'd be willing well, to yeah, go to I'm Costa Rica. Almost
0: everyone is.
1: Almost everyone is. Well, that's how you haunt the margins by being not adventurous. You're like in the negative space. What's going on? Is that? Are you? Are you losing battery?
0: I don't know where that came from.
1: What did it say?
0: It was the Google lady. Your said. porn download is ready. <laughs> Oh. Which I'm totally fine with sharing with the rest of you because oh. I'm open to oh yeah, press play
1: I don't know if we ever introduced ourselves, no, we didn't <laughs> oh, shit, we're like you know us by now, yeah, we don't need to do that anymore. let's do it let's do it again though, because I've got a little middle name, okay, I'm Ryan, clock watcher McKenna.
0: Ah, and you're Harland. I'm Harland, resistant to experiences. <laughs> Grant. Uh, and this Daddlers. was the Doddler's Philosophy Podcast theme week, or whatever. Haunting the margins, episode one. Robert Anton Wilson.
1: Yeah, should we call this one E one for haunting the margins? Now, no. What are we gonna do? It's not. It's not gonna have an E something. Then it'll just Fucking be. It
0: is, of course, it is. No. Nope. You're here to our our
1: first argument. It's not our first argument. We're gonna have to see. I don't know. This won't be e seventeen. I don't think, because it's not the normal thing. Good
0: work, Ryan. Are we are we done here? You all should listen and read Robert Anton Wilson if you are a centralist he's not as weird as you think and if you're a fringer you need to be brought a little bit closer to the center by someone who's already out here
1: now you hear that people time to get reading take your ears off
2: put your eyes on